0: It's a sweet thing. I'm, I'm really, really encouraged every time we get to sing together, and, and I don't know about you, but there are times I'm standing at the front getting ready to preach and just thinking, hey, how about just one more song? I could just do one more, maybe two. And, um, and for those of you who don't know, I sit up at the front. Some of you are like, why do you always sit up at the front? Um, well, i got to get up and preach. That's one reason. But the main reason is this. I get to sit up here and listen to a choir of voices, a choir of the saints singing praise to the Lord. And uh, some of you will never know what that feels like. I appreciate you at the back. It's okay. But uh, I can just, it just lifts my soul. And just to hear the voice of God's people declaring the praises of our great and awesome God is a sweet, sweet thing. And um, it just fires my heart up for the things of the Lord, and I hope you're encouraged and ready to get into God's Word. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 19, and uh, if you don't have a Bible, our ushers are coming to the front here, and uh, they're going to walk towards the back. Just slip your hand up in the air. We want to make sure a Bible, a copy of God's Word gets into your hands, and uh, it's so important that you're able to, to see the truth of God's Word. Um, this is God's Word, and uh, He speaks powerfully through it. If you don't own a Bible, then just keep this one. It's our gift to you this morning. Take it home with you and and be blessed, be encouraged, and and get to know this great and awesome God. I wonder if you've been in circumstances in maybe your life where you have really felt the sense that things needed to change, things needed to be different, but as you kind of thought about the situation, you you kind of began to tell yourself some things like, you know what, Maybe, maybe this is never actually going to change. Maybe this is never going to get better. Maybe maybe there's nothing I can do to help fix the problem that I'm facing. I wonder maybe if you've seen this circumstantially in your life, and I wonder if you've thought about this and maybe a broader scope. Maybe you've looked at the world and you, know, you see the world kind of spiraling out of control, and things seem like they're getting worse in many ways. And in your mind, you, know, you kind of sit there and you think, man, this is really a shame that things are as bad as they are, but what can I do? I'm just one person. It's just little, little me over here. I'm so insignificant. I don't have a voice you know, in any regard. No one's going to listen to me, even if I I did speak up, right? So I'm just going to keep quiet and just kind of cruise along in life. You know, these are just a few of the things I think that we often say to ourselves, and I think we really believe them in our flesh at times, but what they do is they actually reveal for us a lack of understanding of who we are in Jesus Christ and what God has called us to do and be in the world, If you are a part of the church of Jesus Christ, if you have embraced him as your Lord and Savior, one of the things you need to understand is that God has called us as a people to make an impact on the world around us. We are here solely for the purpose, not stolen away from this earth and brought to heaven for this simple purpose, because God is calling us to make a difference in the world around us. There is a sort of, my, my fear, there's a sort of unhealthy pessimism at times in the evangelical church. You know, we look at the world and we say, you know what, the world's just going to get worse and worse and worse, and so I'm just going to sit back and watch it all happen, rather than seeing the command of Jesus to go out into the world and be salt and light. In other words, to go into the world and actually make a difference with our Christianity. The kind of Christian pessimism that exists is not the sound of victory. It is oftentimes, sadly, the sound of defeat. It is not the sound of a a deep and abiding trust in the Lord. It is the sound of a deep fear of the world and maybe others. Oftentimes, this pessimism is the sound of total compromise, not the sound of total dependence. And can you just imagine for a moment if at the time of Jesus, he gathered his disciples around him and he said, look guys, I'm, I'm about to leave here and I'm going to send you 12, this small group of insignificant you know, people, fishermen, tax collectors, nobodies, I'm going to use you to radically change the world. I'm going to work through you. Imagine they said, well, Jesus, I mean, that's a really, really, uh, um, I can I just tell you I'm honored that you would think I could do that? But that's really not going to be possible. Could you imagine what the early church must have been thinking when there was 120 of them gathered in a a room together, waiting for the power of the Holy Spirit, knowing that God had called them to go out into the world and make a difference? Could you imagine if they said, "You know what? Really, this group is too small. We're really too insignificant. There's 120 of us. What difference can we make in the world?" Could you imagine where we would be today if those individuals did not embrace the mission of the church and go out into all the world to make disciples? and believe that God can make an impact through them as they faithfully and fully depend on him. They believed in the mission, and they believed that God had adequately equipped and empowered them to make a difference. We are called to do the very same thing. Our callings are one and the same, We are called to make a spirit-empowered impact on the world around us. And what we see in Acts chapter 19 is that that is exactly what continues to happen through the church in this city that Paul is in called Ephesus. I want to read the first section together. Look at it with me. Beginning at verse 21, it says this, Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to there. He said, I must, to Jerusalem, he'd be saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear, not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with human hands are not gods. And there is a danger, not only that this trait of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her significance, she whom all Asia and the world worship. We see here that the church had already begun to make an impact on the culture and the world around it. And when we're committed to spirit-empowered impact, here's what we need to embrace. We change the culture with spirit-empowered character. That is, in essence, what Jesus called his people to do and be. To be salt and light is to make a difference in the culture around us. You'll notice in verse 21 that Paul was... Literally compelled by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem, resolved in the Spirit, is is not speaking of his own personal desires, a compulsion that is internal to him and resides within him. This is the moving of the Spirit of God. Paul walked so faithfully, filled with the Spirit of God. The Spirit directed him and led him, was constantly moving him and showing him where to go. It's interesting that when Paul is in Ephesus, he's been here As we saw last week, for around three years up till this point, close to three years, he's coming up on that three-year marker. And Paul knows that the Spirit of God is going to begin to move him along. There's more work to be done. This is always in the heart and mind of the Apostle Paul. He knows that there's new ground and new people that need to be reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. He wants to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem and We know from other letters that his plans ultimately change and he takes a different route, but you need to see this. Paul has this intention in his mind to ultimately make it to Jerusalem and then finally to Rome where that will be the end of his ministry. But along the way, he's intentional. You see, he wants to retrace his steps. He wants to move across the path that he's already walked along because he wants to go and visit the churches there. He wants to continue to make an impact in the churches. Paul's mindset is always to be building up the church, to be strengthening the church of Jesus Christ, because he knows when they are healthy, when they are vibrant, that they will continue to have an incredible impact and reach on the rest of the world. I think it's also just really instructive for us. It says in verse 22, and having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, He himself stayed in Asia for a little while. Here's the first thing you need to know. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 9, that a wide door, this is how Paul says, a wide door for effective work has opened to him in Ephesus. And he says, and there are many adversaries. So Paul says, I know I gotta go, I know the Spirit's compelling me, but right now, I'm gonna send these other guys, Timothy and Erastus, in my place, there's work still to be done in the city of Ephesus and in Asia here, and it's always fascinating to me where Paul says, I love that, there is a wide door, there is some kind of unparalleled ministry opportunity that God has provided for the Apostle Paul at this time, in this place, in this city, Paul's like, I have to blaze through this. I mean, how long do we have with this door so wide open to make an impact for the cause of Jesus Christ? It's fascinating to me that whenever there's effective ministry taking place, you'll notice that, that many adversaries always come along in the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Wherever you're being used greatly by God, you can just always expect there's going to be great opposition to your work. Here, Paul sends Timothy and Erastus another just reminder listen, that. This is a team effort. Paul didn't believe he had to do all the ministry himself. This reminds us that Paul's, and by the way, our greatest impact never comes alone. It always comes when we commit to working together, linking arms, and as a a church family, as the people of God, working together for greater impact. But Luke now begins to describe how the church began to impact the surrounding culture. In verses 23 through 27, we get a really, really great glimpse into what was beginning to happen because of Christianity in this city. You see, prior to the growth of the church, the local artisans, the the workmen, those who work with their hands, they had a a really good thing going. There was a big business booming. The economy was being fueled by this massive business. At the epicenter of the life of Ephesus there was a temple to the goddess Artemis. And in that temple or outside of the temple, excuse me, where people worshiped, there was a, a black meteorite that had landed had, had landed on the ground and uh, what they had done is they had carved out a idol, a giant idol of the goddess Artemis. This idol had been fashioned into a grotesque image of a woman. The lower part of Artemis was wrapped like a mummy, tight together. The idol was covered with breasts symbolizing fertility, and the economy of Ephesus was dependent upon the industry of idolatry towards this goddess. It was at the very heart of everything they did. And what began to happen, you see, as, as the church began to grow and flourish all of a sudden the economy began to change. You see, Christianity had hit them where they hurt the most, their bank accounts. There was a guild of silversmiths in Ephesus, an organization, if you can envision, of artisans. They worked with fine metals and wood, and they had the power of a union. That's the picture being painted for us here. There was massive influence there is a man named Demetrius, verse 24 tells us. He's kind of heading up the charge in this. He recognizes what Christianity, the effect that it's beginning to have on their business. People are not buying idols like they used to. Our wealth is decreasing. And so he rallies all of his fellow craftsmen together, these idol makers, these, these men who are making these items that can be brought as acts of worship into the temple, he complains. You can see kind of the heart of his complaint. This is affecting him personally, his own wealth, his own money. You can see the driving force in his life is not truth. It's materialism. But he tacks on, you know, to kind of broaden the, uh, the scope of who he can maybe gather in and, and, and to embrace his cause. He begins to say, well, don't you see, too, that this is going to affect things? Like, this guy Paul has had such a massive influence. Aren't you seeing he's persuading people and turning them away He's telling people that idols really are nothing, that, that there's a true God. That's the essence of the argument being made. It's like our, our money is being depleted, and our goddess is being diminished. You know what's interesting here, because what we begin to see here is what happens when the church is strengthened. There had been such a strengthening of the Christian community. Not only had the gospel begun to spread to more and more people so that many people had actually embraced Jesus and become Christians, but the Christians, here's the key, church, the Christians had become serious about being Christians. It was changing the way they lived. Their entire entire lifestyle was beginning to change, and, and as a result, the economy was being flipped upside down. You know, there's a lot of talk about what we should be doing to transform our culture. You may have, have you know, followed different streams of thought on this, but Christians ought to be more involved in social justice issues. You know, there, there's different ways we should be affecting change out in the world that we need to be intentional about. And by the way, I'm all for a cultural change and, and working as best we can to affect and influence things, but I just want you to see that the greatest way to dramatically change the culture is to ask the Lord to radically change you. I say that again, this is so important for us to understand. So often we're focused out there, we're focused on the externals and tweaking and changing and and what can we go after and fix when meanwhile God is saying you can't fix anything out there until you let me fix you right here. The greatest way to dramatically, because that's what's happened here, make no mistake about it, this is a complete and dramatic change and shift in the lifestyle of this entire culture. It's affecting everything. The greatest way to dramatically change the culture is to ask the Lord to radically change you. It must begin here. If we are going to impact people out there, we must be asking the Lord to continually listen, to regularly be impacting us here. This really, what we see happening in the life of the church in the city of Ephesus is a powerful example of what Paul commands the church to pursue in Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2. Where he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He then goes on to say this Listen, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You know, I really believe that one of the greatest deterrents to Christian impact on the culture around us is our conformity to the world around us. I think there's a sense in which you look at the church, you think of the, maybe your life maybe reflects this. Hopefully it does, but maybe it does. You look at people in the church and you kind of look at their life. You see, what do they spend their time doing? Uh, What are they watching? What are they giving themselves to? What are they investing in? And then maybe you look at somebody in the world and you kind of inspect their life and you see really there's, there's no real difference. You know, the dynamics in the home are relatively the same. There's, there's no evidence that there's anything really that dramatically different. Maybe the only difference we see sometimes with Christians and non-Christians is that there are Christians who have committed maybe to attend church once a week, a couple times a month. But I just hope you see that when the Spirit of God transforms us, By the renewing of our minds, when our worship and our affections are rightly ordered by the Spirit of God, what follows is a greater impact. When God begins to change us, it is visible, it is identifiable, and God will use that to begin to affect change outside of us. We need to be a people who are easily distinguishable from the world around us. You say, what happened here? How did this happen so dramatically? You have to think that everything in this economy is essentially shuffled around and turned upside down in the matter of two to three years. Really, it didn't take, in the grand scheme of things, relatively speaking, a long time to see such a radical shift. I think we can look and begin to kind of contrast what's happening with the people, the unbelievers in Ephesus, and then the the believers in Ephesus. We can kind of come up with a a little brief list here. Here's what I believe happened. They had stopped doing some things that were prevalent in their old lives. Here's what they stopped doing, and, and we need to embrace this in our lives. They stopped worshiping in error. They stopped worshiping in error. Right? This idolatry, this lifestyle, worshiping the, the god Artemis of, Ephesian, of Ephesus, me, was what they did. It was what they knew. But when they were confronted on the reality that really there is no God but the great and mighty God of heaven and earth, it stopped them dead in their tracks. They stopped worshiping in error. They stopped believing the wrong things about God, and they began to believe the right things about God. Secondly, I think this they stopped supporting sinful practices. The natural flow of this, you can see it, right? They realized that they were worshiping the wrong God. They were worshiping in error, and so they abandoned that, and what followed was everything associated with that former life, everything associated with that kind of worship. For them, it was purchasing these idols that these craftsmen had made. It was purchasing these trinkets and and things that they could bring into the temple and offer as a gift of worship to this god Artemis as a way of somehow appeasing this god or bringing blessings upon themselves they utterly and completely abandoned it and then what we see is this i think maybe some of them were saved out of jobs or careers that were benefiting as well from the idolatry you have to understand how pervasive this was in this culture it fueled the economy maybe some of them were taking a hit for this but what they they saw was this they they would stop loving a worldly gain They didn't see that as being the primary thrust of their lives, and and just compare that for a second to, to the men of Ephesus who were angry at this point and were up in arms with the kind of shift that had taken place. They're still worshiping in error. They're still supporting sinful practices, and the driving force of their life is that they love worldly gain above all else. I want more money for me. See, what they started doing was equally as important, so listen to what they started doing. Instead of worshiping in error, they started worshiping in truth. Their entire lives were given over to worship of the true God. Everything began to be reevaluated and sifted through this newfound relationship with the God of the universe. As a result of knowing the true God, being informed, rightly informed of what this God expects of us, they began to abandon sinful practices and they began to embrace holy practices. It's not just about what you stop doing, it's about what you start doing that evidences the work of the Spirit of God in your life and they stopped doing those sinful practices and I just want you to just to consider this for a minute as well, they started loving godly gain. They counted those things as lost for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. They started caring more about God and the things of the Lord than they did about the things of the world. And I, I just wonder if you just look at that paradigm and apply it to your life for a second. What might it look like if God was to take you deeper into worshiping in truth? What would it look like in your life if, if you began to spend more of your time not bowing down to the altars of the world? Just think about that for a second. Think about the way our world worships, how they worship in error. I mean, I can think of a number of different cults that we could pinpoint and that you would be familiar with, but I wonder if you're familiar with the cult of the body. So many in our culture are worshiping at the cult of the body. The human body is everything. Health and exercise, and there's such a, a, an idol made out of the, the human body. It literally a absorbs people into it and and that's all they can think about and all kinds of disorders being produced because people are finding their identity in the god of their body what about the cult of money I mean, that's an easy one isn't it when we look around us and some of us have failed to see that instead of worshiping in truth we're worshiping in error because we worship money and things We love them so much we're looking to accumulate more and more at the expense of giving more of ourselves to the Lord. How about the cult of entertainment? And we're living in a technological age where entertainment is available at any moment for any time and and what's becoming so commonplace is binge watching and throwing our, listen, if it's not your money that is fueling these things, maybe it's your time and your energy, your entire life is given over to the things of the world and you're actually worshiping at a different altar and not worshiping in truth. What would happen if we began to worship in truth and find ourselves more and more devoted to the things of the Lord? What would happen? I wonder if you just ask this question, who would be out of business if Christians started acting like Christians? Think about that. Do you think about some of the sinful things that we pour our money into, the sinful things that can flourish because Christians are unwilling to back out and take a stand against what's wrong? I wonder how much of Hollywood would have to rewrite scripts if Christians would stand up for what's right and true and honorable to the Lord. I wonder how they, because of ratings decreasing on Netflix and and in the box office, if they would be forced to consider that what they're doing in many ways is just reflecting the sinful world and the people of God who are having an impact on the culture around aren't going to stand for it any longer. I wonder... I wonder if Christians started acting like Christians if the pornography industry would begin to collapse that billion and billions of dollars that people throw into into pornography and generating more and more because Christians refuse to look at what is sinful and they refuse to stand for and they refuse to listen to, to in any way advocate for what is ungodly and unholy. I wonder if our stand... And some of these ways would change. I wonder if drug and alcohol addiction centers would be obsolete. I wonder if divorce lawyers would no longer be necessary. I wonder if abuse treatment clinics would no longer be needed. You know, it's an interesting thing that when you look in history, wherever Christianity begins to flourish in the culture around, there is all of a sudden a decrease in so many of these worldly things. There's a decrease in, in criminal activity There's a decrease in exploitation. There's a decrease in drug and alcohol addiction. There's a decrease in all of these kinds of things. And there is an increase in flourishing in the things that matter most to God. Increase in the family. Increase in righteousness. What would happen? What would happen if Christians actually started living like Christians? If godly gain was the most important thing in our lives, not worldly gain? You know, I really think that today many believers' witness is actually anemic and corrupted. It's ineffective. It has zero to, or little to no influence. And much of the church is clamoring, here's how I think why, to get on the world's bandwagon. The reason why the church is failing to have an impact in the world is because we look indistinguishable from the world. Church, listen, too much infatuation with the world and not enough separation from the world will significantly decrease our impact. And we need to hear this. We need to be reminded of this because it's so easy to drift into the world. I feel the pull. I feel the tension. I I see areas of my life that God has been convicting me of and saying, Ian, that's too much like the world. this This is dulling your sensitivity to my spirit. This is something you need to give up and replace with what is right and holy and better for you that's gonna increase your effectiveness in my kingdom. Church, listen, it is impossible to be filled with the spirit and set our mind on things below. It is impossible to be filled with the Spirit of God and have our mind set on things below. This is why Paul calls us, set your mind on things above, not on things below. He wants us to be fueled by the power of the Spirit of God so that we might make an impact on the world around us. Church, it is impossible to be filled with the Spirit of God and live for the dollar. It is impossible. You cannot have both God and money. They cannot both be your masters. You will serve one and hate the other. Christians, maybe this will hit a little bit closer to some of our hearts. It is impossible to be filled with the Spirit of God and watch a show that continually feeds the base appetites of our flesh. What are we compromising? What are we willing to expose ourselves to for the sake of entertainment that needs to be shut down and shut off so the Spirit of God can continue to operate in the fullest power in our lives so that we might go out into the world and have an impact? Church, please just listen. Before we can go out there and expect change, we need to be asking the Lord to be changing us here. It has to begin here if we're going to have any impact there. And God, God, help us, amen, help us to have Christian character that is formed and molded by the Spirit of God, by the power of the Word of God. That's what's happening in this church, and it is literally turning everything upside down. It is infuriating the world around them as they see the effects of Christianity Many react positively and want to taste and see that the Lord is good. Others react negatively because it impacts the bottom line for them. This is why we need to be able to confront the culture with spirit-empowered courage. Because we're always going to, if we're living faithfully and righteously before the Lord, we're always going to be inciting some kind of opposition or conflict. You just need to be expected. All those who desire to live righteously in Christ Jesus will be persecuted Verse 28, it's interesting, look at what happens. When they heard this, they were enraged. He's rallied these people together, all these artisans, you know, everybody's in the union. And he said, look, look what's happening. Look how this is affecting us. And they're angry, filled with rage, and they begin to cry out. It says, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So that the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him, and even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now, some cried out one thing and saw another for the assembly was in confusion and most of them did not know why they had come together some of the crowd prompted alexander whom the jews had put forward and alexander motioning with his hand Wanted to make a defense to the crowd, but when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Can you just imagine that for two hours? I would go insane. This is what's happening in this city. They're so filled with rage. There's so much confusion. They're just chanting like a violent mob. Demetrius, he didn't have any trouble getting a crowd together. He had great influence. Clearly, he had great influence. But it's helpful to understand that this was actually a time where there was a celebration taking place, a celebration of Artemis. It's a festival called Artemisia, and it's a month of debauchery, during which pilgrims come from everywhere to participate in athletic contests, to drink, to carouse, to have a ritual, fling with prostitutes. It's kind of like the Super Bowl. I like football. Don't be angry. A man named Achilles Tatius, an eyewitness to one of these festivals, he wrote about this in the first century. He left this description. This is a secular account. He says, it was the festival of Artemis and every place was full of drunken men and all the marketplace was full of a multitude of men through the whole night. This is the environment that Demetrius walks into and he begins to stir up all of these drunken men who are celebrating this goddess Artemis. And Demetrius' friends begin this ritual chant, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And soon the multitudes are joining in and they pour into the Arcadian Way through the city of Ephesus. It's a a magnificent boulevard that ran straight through the city, connecting the harbor with this massive 24,000 seat theater or amphitheater. This huge mob of people is chanting, the ground is shaking, the voices are screaming at the top of their lungs for two solid hours. You say, why is Luke telling us this? He's intending to paint the picture of great intensity and what would likely produce great fear in the hearts of any human being who is on the opposite side of this great mob. Can you see why courage was necessary for Paul and for his friends at this point? This mob, listen, one little thing goes wrong and all of a sudden Paul and his companions are torn limb from limb. I mean, have you seen a riot? They're not pretty. It's a terrifying scene. This mob mentality is created with the intent of producing fear. That's Demetrius's goal. He wants to stamp out Paul. He wants to stamp out Christianity. He wants Paul to run for the hills. You take your religion, and you take all the damage it's doing to me and my city, and you get out of here. You know, I think there's a rightful place for protests, peaceful protests. Can clarify. I think, isn't it interesting, we've seen even in recent months that protests and rallies can become very dangerous very quickly, right? Fueled by anger and hatred. I mean, it's not uncommon to see cars being flipped over and lit on fire, all kind of damage done to other people's property. It's not uncommon to hear that people have been trampled to death in a riot. You know, those kind of protests are often, isn't this true, they're often dangerous and destructive but they're often a form of bullying those who disagree it's intended to strike fear if you're on the opposite side of us you just know we're not happy with you and we're willing to do something about it we often see uh, in these kind of rallies and even outside of rallies just in the general public maybe through the media we see all kinds of clever rhetoric being used to try and intimidate christians for what we believe And the message that they want to send through their rhetoric is simply this, we don't care what you think, we don't like what you believe, so why don't you just sit down and shut up and keep your views to yourself, and if you don't like it, you can get out of here. That's the world, in many ways, wants to say to us. Just think of the kind of of rhetoric that's used oftentimes in the media. Christianity is so intolerant, and we're all about tolerance, right? We embrace everybody, except for you, because you don't like what we stand for. I mean, we're all about love, and you Christians, you, that's not loving to tell somebody that they're sinning. You see what the rhetoric is doing there? Oh, that's what you think? That's what you think about people who, 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 who you know, that's what you think about homosexuality? Well, how dare you? That's hate speech. You Christians, you're on the wrong side of history. You're in the minority. Your beliefs and your views on God—they're not going to be tolerated here. Don't you love that? Sometimes this is very overt. Sometimes it's really subtle, isn't it? Right? People want to throw statistics, and if somehow they can prove that enough people believe something, then it must be true, right? Church, there will be no impact where there is capitulation, and there will be capitulation where there is no courage. We are living in a time, and we will continue to live in a time, I believe, where great courage is going to be needed to stand for the things of the Lord. And what we see in Paul and his companions is such a powerful example of spirit-empowered courage. Verses 19 through 31, excuse me, 29 through 31, really paint this amazing picture. It says that the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater. Look at what they're doing. They're dragging with them these friends of Paul, Gaius and Aristarchus. They haul them in. And just imagine, you're on the opposite side of, you know, maybe 22 to 24,000 people who are chanting, you know, great as Artemis of the Ephesians. And here you are standing in the middle, being ready to be torn from limb, limb from limb. You want to see some courage. It takes courage to stand in the midst of that and to not capitulate and compromise. And look at Paul. I love this. When Paul, verse 30, wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. So here's, here's Paul, Paul's watching his friends be dragged in, and instead of going like, ooh, that's, that's, that's going to be tough for them, you know what he does? Paul's like, you know what, I need to somehow get in there, and the, here's kind of the point, Paul's like, I'll take their place, your beef is with me, I mean, I'm the guy, I'm, you're angry with me, you've already made that clear, well, here I am, let me take their place, and here what we see is this, Paul has some courage, right, he's willing to stand up before the masses, you know, maybe a part of Paul, I, I, Paul loves to preach the gospel, right, Paul probably is like, hey, I, I've, I've got no fear here. I'll go into this amphitheater and preach the gospel, right? Besides, like, like you can't, guys, I'm the Apostle Paul. I I can't let you guys do this. This is the greatest opportunity in my life right now, 24,000 people. He's a stadium preacher. He's the first stadium preacher. (laughs) But it's interesting here that, this courage does not mean a lack of wisdom. Sometimes we can push forward where God's saying, oh, hold on a second here. That's not courageous. That's stupid. That's foolish. And it says here in verse 31 that even some of the Asiarchs, that is uh, some, some officials, some of the city officials, there were people, it's so fascinating, they were friends of his, they sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. It's likely that these are actually unbelievers, it's possible, that Paul has had such an incredible influence on the world around him that even the unbelievers, they like Paul a lot of them, it's like, Paul, if you go here, it's going to end your ministry, Paul's like, well, i still got work to do. I know the Spirit of God is already telling me i got work to do, so maybe I better listen to some wisdom here. And so he's like, okay, I'll let, I'll let these boys take this one on the chin. They can handle themselves. And in this scene, it's, it's unbelievable. This entire scene is intended to produce fear, and what we see being exemplified is incredible spirit-empowered courage. It takes a lot of courage and sound thinking to stand firm when the majority are all going the other way, doesn't it? When everybody is against you, I think you know the Bible is filled with illustrations of this, filled with Old Testament characters in particular. I can think of so many. You know, my mind runs to you know, I want to talk about courage. I think of Daniel in the lion's den. You know, Daniel here he is, this righteous man of God, has this incredible position right in the the kingdom, and, and he's threatened. That if he continues to pray and bow down to his Lord, then he's going to be thrown into a pit of lions, and that's going to be his punishment. And here's Daniel going, you know what? I don't care. My allegiance is to my God. You do with me what you will. I'm standing firm on the truth. And to the amazement, right? Here goes. So they go, okay. They got to throw Daniel down. They roll away the stone the next morning. They peer down. And there's Daniel cuddled up, fast asleep, with a bunch of lions. I think of David, right? Here's little David, right? A young teenager, he's bringing his brother some food as they're at the front lines in the battle against the great Philistine army. And there's this massive giant named Goliath who has been just deriding the people of God and humiliating them. And he's just tarnishing the glory of God. And David walks up and he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Who does he think he is? That he should defy the armies of the living God. So where does this kind of courage come from? How, how do we cultivate and foster this kind of courage in our lives? I, first of all, I think, I think you have to be spirit-empowered to have this, and so I just want to help you think this. through. Let me give you a few ways you can continue to allow the spirit to grow your courage for the things of the Lord. The first is this. I think we need clean hands. I mean that in the spiritual sense. You know, one of the things we see unfolding in this text is that Paul and his companions, the Christians and the church in general, they'd done nothing wrong. Their consciences were clean before the Lord. They're simply walking in faithful obedience. You know, that is what it means to have clean hands in the spiritual sense, that the Spirit of God grows our character and He grows our courage as we continue to walk in faithfulness to the Word of God. Now, by the way, we're not talking about the perfection of your life. It's about the direction of your life. You know, the Christian continues to walk in repentance and faith and trusting the word of the Lord. You know, I think of David who walked in sin, certainly, but called out to the Lord for clean hands. And he was able to have confidence in the cleanliness of his hands, his heart, his soul, simply because he was a man who was willing to repent. Inward purity, church, listen, inward purity is the key to power and courage in the midst of spiritual conflict. You want to have courage, you better be sure that you are walking with the Lord so that you know for a fact that He is standing close with you. Following closely to clean hands, I think here's what else can help cultivate that courage, spirit-empowered courage. It's a pure heart pure heart. We, we desperately need a pure heart. And by that, there's the cleansing work of the Spirit of God. But I think what the cleansing work does is it grants to us motives that are honoring to the Lord. In other words, when you look at these men here, when you look at their innocence, it's not just that they had done nothing wrong. Here's the key. Listen, they had done everything right. Their desire was not for their own wealth. Their desire was not for their own benefit and selfish pursuits. Their desire was to put on display the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. When their hearts were driven. This is Paul. This is Paul's life. He sees people in desperate need of the truth of Jesus Christ. He sees people who are lost and dead in their trespasses and sin. And he knows that the motivating factor of his life, his entire life, is to be wrung out for the things of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's not in this for himself. He's in it for the souls of people, for their eternal joy, their eternal salvation, and he's in it for the glory of God. And so when your heart is to glorify God Almighty, when you live for His glory and not your own, can I just tell you what kind of courage that produces in your life? You will stand firm. When it's not about you and it's all about Him, you will stand firm when things get hard. And that flows out of this third thing you want to cultivate courage, spirit, and power, courage. You need to have strong convictions. You will not stand for what you do not believe is true. You will compromise and capitulate if you have not given yourself over to the things of the Lord. If this book and the truth that it contains is not flowing through your veins, when it gets hard, I'm telling you, you will compromise. You will throw the towel in. You will say it's not worth it. But when you believe that in here we see the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through Him, Jesus Christ, you will stand firm when many others will falter and fail. It's that conviction, church. It's that conviction that we need that produces the kind of courage that God requires of us. You know, the world is never impacted by the majority. The world's not truly altered by the majority. The world is is altered and impacted by a minority who choose to walk to the beat of a different drum in church. We walk to the beat of the drum of the Holy Spirit of God. And we are committed to that God will give us spirit-empowered impact, spirit-empowered courage. Third and finally, listen, we need to challenge the culture with spirit-empowered confidence. We will make no impact if we do not have confidence. And courage in many ways flows from this. Great courage is only a reality where there is great confidence. And what we see in verse 35 through 41 is really helpful he says this that when the town clerk had quieted the crowd he said men of ephesus who is there who is there excuse me who does not know that the city of the ephesians is temple keeper of the great artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky seeing then that these things cannot be denied you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash for you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess if therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are pro Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly, for we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly." So here's this large crowd gathered together, together in this amphitheater, and they're all chanting, you know, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, and there's so much confusion. Did you catch that in the text there? Like, mean, can you just imagine that? They're all chanting for two hours. It's like this big drunken party. You know, one guy's great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Hey man, do you know why we're here? I got no clue. Why, why are you here? I don't know. I just thought just start chanting. This is crazy. And and there's some rationality all of a sudden injected into the situation and into the chaos. There's a town clerk who recognizes that there's some serious problems and that he needs to to calm things down and make sure that people understand what's really happening here. And what I love here is this, that, you know, we can have great confidence. That's what this passage is teaching. Luke, when he writes about the ministry of the Apostle Paul, one of the things he wants to constantly remind us of is that Paul was innocent and that God was in control. Every time things got bad, it's just like, hey, it's just watch how God works. It's okay. And here I love the Christians in this scene, and this isn't always the case, but the Christians are vindicated. Paul was not ultimately attacked, he was not torn limb from limb. He was eventually and seemingly without any trouble able to leave the city of Ephesus. And in this situation, I I like looking at this, and I was thinking about this, I'm thankful that God has given legal systems that actually work. And more than that, maybe He's given people who care that they actually work. The town clerk calms the crowd, and he walks them through some simple logic. He says essentially four things that help calm down the crowd. Notice what they are. He says first, he says, our religion is still present and functioning. Verse 35, he reminds them, look, our city has been you know, designated by the gods to be the temple keepers of Artemis of the Ephesians. Like, this is our religion. And, and by the way, it's still here. And his point is simply this. And guys, come on, I mean, they haven't really done that much damage. It's not going anywhere. It's not like they've, they've, they've gotten rid of the entire religious system that we have. I mean, come on. That's good when people begin to think like that, by the way. That's good. Like, how much of an impact are they really having? That's what he's trying to say. It's really not as bad as you think it is, That's his first argument. second one is this, that these men are innocent and not guilty. This is fascinating. 36, he says, Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. He's saying, look, they have really done nothing wrong. They haven't haven't kind of taken any, any shots at our religion. They haven't publicly mocked or berated our public system, or excuse me, our religious system. Now, I have to tell you, I think this is absolutely fascinating. We're getting kind of a glimpse. You need to catch this. We're getting a glimpse of the way the Apostle Paul ministered. Now, think of this. This is two to three years Paul has been ministering in the city, and it can be said definitively that there is no sacrilegious comments being made. There is no blasphemy, blaspheming being done. And I think that's important because I think, I think, sadly, what we see is this. So often we see in our culture a lot of angry Christians. You know, when we look at Paul here, what he's telling us by his example is that he has never needlessly attacked and maligned other people in other religious systems. I think so often, sadly, in our culture, we so often want to go on the attack rather than, like Paul, compassionately persuade people out of error and into the truth. You know, we want to be militant. You know, Paul's not running into the Temple of Artemis and going, You fools! How dare you, you guys are so foolish for believing what you believe. Don't you know the truth? You know, with a sense of expectation that they can just simply walk out of the darkness and into the light. He has such compassion. He said, How, how, how can Paul do this? You know, Paul, Paul, he wants to move people. He, he understands theologically where people are at. You know, the Bible tells us that people are dead in their trespasses and sins. It's just they're they're living in blindness. Their eyes have been veiled from seeing the truth. And Paul's looking at these people and he's saying, these people are in desperate need of being rescued, not beaten over the head with a Bible. I want to win them from their error. I want to compassionately plead with them. When's the last time you shed tears over somebody who didn't know the truth instead of getting angry when they disagreed with you? Paul's heart is just, I want you to know the truth. And then you say, how can Paul just operate with with such compassion? Here's why. Paul's confidence was in the power of the gospel proclaimed, okay? Paul's confidence was not in his ability to persuade. It wasn't in how clever he was. It, It wasn't in anything in and of himself. Paul had confidence because he knew that God would do what he would do through the gospel that was preached, The Spirit of God would take that and would begin to remove the veil. The scales would fall off. You say, how did Paul know that? Uh, Have you ever heard of the Damascus Road? Blinded by the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Scales covering his eyes symbolically, reminding him of his own spiritual blindness. And then God removing the scales, transforming his life. by the way, Paul's way worked. Did you kind of catch that here? I mean, all the people in this province of Asia had heard the word of the Lord. His compassionate, gracious, but intentional and urgent proclamation of the gospel was having a massive impact. Third, listen to what this town clerk does. He essentially tells them to follow the proper channels. He said, look, there's a legal, a right legal way of handling this. You need to go through the right people, the right channels to, to kind of make sure that this is happening the proper way. If they have a complaint, like go, the courts are open. Just go deal with them there. That's how we deal with problems in this city. And I think that that's really, really helpful and instructive. And I just, I just know this that I praise God for good laws and for those who are willing to abide by them. That's a gift from the Lord. It's a gift from the Lord. God can work through those channels, and there have been many through history, including Paul, who used them wisely for the protection of the church. And while we don't put our hope in the government, we believe that God has established it, and He can work through it. Government was God's idea. Do you know that? And God is in charge. He can work through those channels in very helpful ways. And fourthly, notice this. What He actually tells them is that you're actually the ones in danger of breaking the law. He said, we really are, verse 40, in danger of being charged with rioting today since there is no cause that, being, that can be given to justify this commotion. You know, they were a Roman colony. They were under Roman rule. And for them to have any kind of rioting could be perceived by the Roman authorities as being subversive and, and maybe needing some control. So Romans would, the Romans would then have to come in and kind of take back and straighten things out and they would lose a lot of their liberties and privileges that they've enjoyed and they're saying, you guys better think about what you're doing. This could have a, a more impact on you than you realize. You know, Luke records in detail how Paul and the Christians were vindicated. Those who were in charge said that they had done nothing wrong. The truth is that they did everything absolutely right. They were not afraid of the challenges of the world, and they were not afraid to challenge the world. They had a a deep confidence in the Lord. They didn't live in fear and anxiety, constantly worried about what might happen to them and how is this going to work out for us. They were confident because they knew that they would be vindicated, listen, either in this life or in the next. They were confident because they believed firmly. Church, this is so important. They believed firmly in the sovereignty of God. They knew that what we need to know is that not a hair can fall from our heads unless God ordains it. Church, can I encourage you to let your faith be bigger than your fears? Because God is bigger than your circumstances. He's bigger than any danger we face out there, and He is worthy of our complete and total trust. You know, Christians were not always vindicated in this life. In fact, history is full of many who died for their profession of faith in Jesus Christ But I think what we see here is helpful for establishing our confidence. You see, they were willing to die because they looked beyond this life to the life that is to come. Their future glory and their future joy outweighed any present suffering they may face for Jesus Christ. They were willing to suffer here for the surpassing weight of glory and because they were willing to suffer and trust God, Christians continued to make a massive impact on the culture and the world around them. One author said this, it is no exaggeration to say that there is not a soul living in the world today who worships Artemis of the Ephesians, while there are millions who worship Jesus Christ and would willingly die for him. So we challenged the culture the same way they did. They did exactly what Jesus Christ had done and what he had sent them into the world to do. They preached the gospel so that men and women got converted, and once they were converted, they taught them how to live for Jesus Christ. It's so interesting, listen, that by the fourth century, most of Ephesus had converted to Christianity. History records this. And history also records that John Christostom, Archbishop of Constantinople, he ordered the destruction of the Temple of Artemis. Its sculptured stones were carried away to Italy and especially to Constantinople for the great church of St. Sophia. How ironic is that? God is tearing down the temples of the world and He is building His church. It took time, but the once loud chants of great is Artemis of the Ephesians was replaced with great is Jesus, Savior of the world. Church, do you want to make an impact on the world today? Do you want to turn this world of ours upside down? Do you want to make a difference for Jesus Christ where you are? Just do what they did. Let the gospel change you first, producing the undeniable character of Jesus Christ in your life. Then preach Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. Teach the word of God with boldness and courage, refusing to be silenced. And follow hard after Jesus Christ with great confidence. Trusting that our God is faithful and true and will accomplish His great purpose in us and through us. Look, it doesn't take large numbers. God can use a small group of people. A small group of people who are willing to walk in total dependence. Committed to Spirit-empowered impact. God, we pray that you would make that the desire of our hearts. God, would we be a people who are living in total dependence upon you? God, like we see the church in Ephesus, Lord, forsaking the things of the world, turning away from them and embracing you fully, worshiping in spirit and in truth, being changed and transformed into the very image of Christ, his character flowing through them, changing the way they live and the world around, having to take notice I pray that you would increase our courage. God, may you give us a deep confidence in knowing, Lord, that you are sovereign and in complete control. God, we know the end from the beginning. We know how this all turns out, Lord. We know that our God is for us, that he will never leave or forsake us. We know that whatever happens to us in this life, Lord, is under your sovereign control and care. So God, I just pray right now that you would stir our hearts, that we might be a church and a people who would want to follow hard after you. Lord, in the good times, when there is no opposition, when there is no persecution, when there's no threat coming our way, Lord, may we follow hard after you. But God, when things get ramped up against us, when we start living more like the church, when we Christians start acting more like Christians, and Lord, we face the opposition from the world, Lord, would you help us by the power of your spirit to continue to walk faithfully? follow hard after You. And Lord, by doing so, would You, through us, make an impact on the world around us. For the gospel and the glory of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.